back. It's Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of CSA and the host of the CSA podcast show. And I've got another career journey uh, to share with you. I've got a great guest uh, on the show today, uh, Brian Foster, who is at SoCal uh, Southern California Edison. Uh, he is the GMS security lead and a, a known uh, contributor in the industry and speaker. And uh, we're going to talk about how he ended up where he is. So we'll go back to the beginning. But uh, uh, Brian uh, comes to us uh, with a with a great background. He's uh, as I always like to delve into it. You know, what are people really? What makes uh, Brian Brian? So he's a he's a, not only an engineer and a cybersecurity and a control system cybersecurity expert. He's a husband. He's a dog lover. He's a pilot. He is a brewer, and even raspberry pies are involved with the brewing, and he's an outdoorsman, a hunter, a mentor, uh, so a nice, uh, well-rounded individual bringing a lot to our community. Thanks for coming on the show, Brian. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, Brian, I always, it's the same shtick at the end of these, uh, beginning of these shows. It's uh, uh, cybersecurity people are a type of uh, modern-day superhero, and uh, all superheroes have a backstory. So, where did Brian come from? I'm waiting for one of you to say you you know fell into a vat of, of industrial waste and that's how you got your magic powers but nobody so far has has that backstory so actually no that, that didn't happen to me either but i i didn't come from the, the traditional background you tend to find in these if there is such a thing as a traditional background right i, I came very much growing up out in the country and um kind of you know being around technology constantly and always, always being around technology, but never really being that directly involved in it, tinkering here and there and kind of drifting away from all of that, going into, you know, very mechanical based manuf uh, and manufacturing engineering um, and all of that kind of stuff. And really coming back to the technology side of things and then eventually security. It was not a, a clean journey and it was much more of a series of good mistakes. Well, you, uh, let's start at the beginning. You grew up, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in, in Oregon and not, not in a big city. No, yeah, yeah. So I grew up in an old logging community that really, logging was mostly dead, right? There was, there was cattle still. Um, there was some logging, but not, not much left anymore. Uh, and now it's actually like kind of a suburb of one of the larger cities. Um, so the, the logging industry is almost entirely gone. I think cattle's mostly gone as well. Yeah. Uh, lots of lots of new development though. Yeah, I think you now you know you have a wine industry uh, there that's pretty going pretty strong. Yeah, yeah. So the wine industry is growing, you know, which is which is great. New agriculture coming in. I'm always supportive of that. Also a very big fan of wine myself. So you know, more wineries the better. Uh, we're seeing a lot here, of new grapes here, go here. in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and yeah, it's good. Yeah. I mean, let's get you know closer back to uh, the Brian path. You know. Sure. Uh, breweries and brewing since you are a brewer and you're into that um what's the what's the brew scene out there i mean i i know portland you know, oregon and, and seattle and all that area has got a lot going on with that too yeah well now that i'm i'm much closer to portland than where i grew up in oregon and uh yeah we're surrounded by breweries they're, they're coming and going all the time uh there's a lot of new innovation people really experimenting with beers and making some cool stuff my personal brewing tends not to be as experimental as some of the, the very popular things out there now um like these uh these uh, smoothie beers, so they're like a fruit smoothie slash beer, wow. and man, they they become they just they're blowing up. They're as big as the IPA was uh, five years ago, yeah. and uh, yeah, it's I don't I don't know how many calories you're drinking when you have one of those things, but they are delicious. <laughs> yeah, it's probably three three thousand eight hundred twenty two calories per shot, but you know, oh man. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Worth it though. Totally worth it. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. 
Uh, so, okay, so you go from, uh, you know, rural rural Oregon. Where does, uh, you know, I'm always curious sort of when things converge on on all your paths. When does technology, you know, converge on your, on your path? Sure, yeah. Well, so it's kind of a weird, I don't have a straight answer for it. I'll put it that way. So I, I might be one of the oldest people that don't actually remember a point in my life that there wasn't a computer around. Um, you know, when I was growing up, I think we had a, we had a Commodore 64. Me too. We, there you go. Yeah. Well, I, I, that was like my very first memory of, of computers. Um, Me too. And I, I don't remember a time. Modem. Did you have a modem? We did. Yeah, we had a modem. We, I remember dialing up boards when, oh, when yeah. the internet wasn't quite really a thing yet. Yes, um, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but see, we were probably a slightly different age when we were doing that. Um, I, I was doing that as a as a very young child, um, and we quickly got uh, AOL internet, dial-up internet, way back in the day. And I think at that time we had switched to an IBM PS2. Yeah, which that was that was a game changer. Such an amazing computer. We had a a game uh, load runner, I think it was, oh, on yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I played that that so much. I was a master at load load running. You had like the little tiny joystick that was like holding onto the end of a pencil, that was connected to a box that's larger than my laptop is now, and, you know, and two buttons on it, and, and that's how you played the game. And man, that was phenomenal. So yeah, there was there's like I said earlier, I was really kind of away from technology a lot, but always had it around. Uh, you know, I I spent more time outdoors than I did playing on the computer, but we had the computers all the time. And I did play a lot of games. I, I attempted to do, you know, my homework on the computers as well back before most kids were doing that because uh, we had whatever the word processor program was at the time. It's not around anymore, and I, I can't recall. But, uh, yeah, I would, I would attempt to type it up on there, and I'm really not sure that it was faster than uh, at the time using a typewriter or handwriting your reports. But, you know, it, it, was, it was the new thing, and I was always interested in the new thing. So yeah, always, always around technology um, to some level, but also always trying to ignore it. <laughs> so, so I'm curious where this leads, you know, uh, looking at uh, graduating high school, where do you go? That, could lead, that sort of background could lead a lot of different directions. You could be out, yeah. out doing something outdoors uh, or you could be, uh, you know, going to school. You know, what, what happens next? Yeah, well, so I, I go and get um, a couple of degrees in engineering and immediately try to go into like the wood products industry. So, you know, not, not necessarily directly into logging, but uh, plywood manufacturing, uh, dimensional lumber and that kind of stuff. Cause that was more of a, it was a hands-on job to me, but still with the right balance of technology. Um, so I could effectively attempt to continue to run from the computers while still doing something that was relatively high tech and, and that I enjoyed that was challenging. Uh, the story of my life is always seeking the next challenge, uh, as tends to be in this industry. <laughs> so yeah, you you, you pursue uh, mechanical engineering and manufacturing engineering. So that's I think that's sort of important. Uh, and then you go into an industry starting to apply that because people say, where do the security experts in our in our OT ICS space come from? You know, are they all former you know engineers and, and operating technology folks that learn some cyber? Are they cyber people that learn some operating technology? And putting aside the argument of where the where the most qualified or the best people come from, there's lots of opinions on that. The truth is, they come from they come from multiple backgrounds, and you come from oh yeah, you come from the engineering background and the process the process background. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of the what I you know I graduated in 2010 with both of those engineering degrees, and uh, as you 
likely recall, the job market in 2010 was not exactly phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. So, it, you know, it was a bit of a struggle there. And uh, I did not intend to go into controls engineering, but it was it was the industry that was hiring relatively strong at the time. And that's, you know, kind of where I ended up going. And just because I happened to be the engineer who knew the most about computers and technology, I was often also the person in charge of all sorts of things. Like, so at the very first job out of college, I was managing the server rack too. Uh, so I effectively became the IT support, which, you know, doesn't make a lot of sense, but it was like a eight person company, I think. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So everyone kind of did what they had to. <laughs> well, that's, that's important too. I mean, I, I'll ask you a question. It comes up in some of the interviews when people say, uh, if people have engineering background, um, and I say, well, what, what do they need to, you know, what is the, if they can't pick one thing to start to learn, if they want to add this to their path, cybersecurity, they said networking. More than oh, one yeah. person said, understand how it works. Before you get into anything more exotic, go there. And so you, by the nature of being a, sort of getting some extra duties in IT, you started down that path. Yeah, well, it, it started long before that. I mean, I, I bought off of eBay as like a 12-year-old kid, an old uh, Cisco managed switch. Uh, like yeah. a 10, 10 base team managed switch. Uh, and we used to use that to set up LAN parties. So, you know, literally we'd all yeah. carry around our giant computers <laughs> uh, to each other's houses. And uh, I think, I think we were playing civilization or something back then and uh, counter-strike on local LAN, if I recall correctly, gosh, I haven't thought about this stuff in ages. Uh, but yeah, so I, I was the, the kid who owned the switch. I think it was a 24 port. So I could connect up to 24 computers, although that really didn't work well on a 10-base team network. But, uh, you know, that's, uh, I would say that's absolutely correct. The understanding of networking is, is fundamental. Um, it's, it's the basis. And, yeah, I, I got to experience it kind of just loosely as a kid with no guidance whatsoever. Um, although I did actually, I hadn't thought about this in a really long time. In high school, I got my um, Cisco certification, CCNA. Because it was a it was an optional like elective class uh, from the community college that high schoolers could take for free. I don't actually recall if I sat for the test or not, but I I passed the class, which was like a two year course. So I guess I have known about networking for a while. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's, I'm glad that came up because yeah, that's that's part of your foundational sort of DNA. And I know you go on then in the in the next years and the next few sort of a uh, few companies. It's all about process, process control engineer, and, and from yeah. instrumentation to controls to training even, you, you started touching on a lot of different things and a lot of different equipment, ABB, Rockwell, all the big, you know, Siemens, uh, all the big, uh, sort of the big OEMs, you had interactions with all that technology as well. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was very fortunate. I had the opportunity to screw up just about every piece of technology out there. And then, you know, through the process of, of uh, learning from my mistakes, getting pretty good at it. Um, and it got to the point, you know, ultimately, uh, which I'm sure we'll get to in more detail, uh, what kind of led me away from the controls industry and into security was was that controls got boring. It got to a point where, you know, some some customer would come out and, and be like, hey, I need this machine to do this thing. And I'd knock out a code and hand it, hand it over to the, the folks who delivered it to them who were like, whoa, 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 we got to we got to, you know, hold on to this and we, you, you did it too fast and got to double check everything and, and all that kind of stuff. And it just got to be second nature to me and it was no longer a challenge. So it was on to the next challenge. <laughs> so when does cybersecurity, that's a great segue to sort of my natural progression of questions is like, we see where I, you know, where, where fundamental, you know, uh, IT 
understanding is part of your early DNA, obviously engineering and process control, early part of your DNA, and security yeah. intersects somewhere in there. And I'm always curious that if some people recall moments or or episodes or events, you know, when do you recall when cybersecurity first comes in and um and then and does it take over at that point? For some people it's like, yep, after that, all I do is cybersecurity related to this. Yeah. Well, so like professionally, um, cybersecurity comes in when I get bored with controls, uh, but it's always kind of been there in the background. And, and to, to illustrate that, um, I'll just say that, you know, back in high school, the IT administrator may or may not have had a password that was Buffalo, um, yeah, all lowercase, uh, very, very easy to guess. And this was back in the Windows NT days, right? It's probably um, still that password at that school today. Yeah, it probably is. I, I probably just that I'm not going to tell them what school if someone goes and digging up my past. You know, they're it's all boned, I guess. But it's probably still <laughs> It probably is. Uh, well, so I know they changed the password because uh, we people I may or may not have known and may or may not have been involved with uh, definitely use that access to yeah. do things they should not have. Um, and you know, this was also the era of like payphones, which were very easy to we'll just say mess with. <laughs> so uh, growing up as a rebellious kid um, during the age when I thought I was a punk rocker or something, I was certainly on the other side of security to some level. And then I kind of left all that. Again, you know, I was trying to get away from a lot of the computer technology at some point there uh, just because I felt more connected to the outdoor world and I hadn't figured out how to blend the two yet. Uh, so go and become an engineer, get bored doing engineering, and that's when security started to creep back in. I'm like, well, I need a new challenge in life. I need something that's, that's not just going to be boring because I can't be bored for the rest of my days. I'll go crazy. And, uh, you know, at the time, OT security was kind of exploding. And uh, I had been loosely involved in it with every job that I've had from the very first job out of, out of college. Uh, you know, I was managing the IT rack. Uh, I was actually an expert witness in a court case uh, in which I had to pull security logs illustrating that someone had changed uh, a bunch of records. Uh, so that was one of the first professional dabblings, if you will, and into cybersecurity was was going and pulling these logs. And then from there, you know, a plywood manufacturing plant that I was working at, we were really trying to build some security around some of the control systems. And I was working with the IT people that were just constantly pissing off uh, all of the manufacturing floor folks and, and were causing problems, to be honest. And yeah. I ended up becoming the liaison between the two, um, you know, basically, because I, I could understand the need for cybersecurity. And I understood that you, you can't just, you know, lock down all sorts of ports or and you can't hell they were doing like port scans and stuff like that on the ot network and it was just causing havoc um so yeah there was there was there always some level it was creeping in and then as a consulting engineer doing controls when i really got bored with it i was like all right i gotta do something else and, and that's when i basically made the full shift to security um really left the controls engineering behind quite a bit uh, and I still, even to this day, I still dabble in it. Sometimes folks come out to, with questions like, oh, man, we're really stuck with this controls thing. And, and can you take a look at it? And, and I'll look at it here and there. Um, admittedly, I am getting uh, worse at it over the years. The, the longer I go without doing it professionally, sure. right, the worse I get at it. But it's still That's there. And I, knowledge atrophies. I mean, it just it happens. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's it, it really was kind of a, a sudden shift when I was working for Concept Systems, which is a great little controls house, uh, not so little anymore, actually. They're a really good controls house uh, here in Oregon and do work. 
uh, worldwide. But they not trying to plug them, just saying they were they were a good place to work. I really enjoyed it. But they enabled me to make that shift. They said, "Oh yeah, you want to move to security?" Uh, they paid for some of the professional training that I went went did that. Got some certifications, um, which all of which have have now lapsed, which we could talk about it if you want to. <laughs> uh, and that's where the shift happened, was was there at Concept. And I, I haven't gone back. It's, it's full security now. I find myself more and more on the management side of security, but I'm sure we'll get into that. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I was going to segue to something that's, uh, I, I think, pretty crucial. And I know you have some, not only thoughts on it, but, but, but you put this into practice, which is, um, you know, there's some real dysfunction in our um, arena between different stakeholders and, and, uh, and, and in the same company. Um, people who might be running operational technology and people who might be either in an IT role or department or people that might be in a blended sort of cross-functional role or, or you know, uh, a, a variety of folks. Risk, I mean, the bigger the companies, they have even these other silos. Uh, but, but clearly, there's often operational technology people and then sort of IT-based cybersecurity, you know, folks. And there's... There's friction and distrust, and there's there's historical reasons why that you know why that's there. And you're, I know, a big believer in sort of building bridges between those groups. That's yeah. also right in CSA's wheelhouse. That's what we want to try to do is 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 help people build more bridges. So talk about that. I think that's a pretty big possible takeaway for people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think everyone talks about like the OTIT convergence, right? And I just want to real quickly point out that the technology side of that convergence happened 15 years ago. 20 years ago, maybe. Um, so really what, what I think people mean, but don't necessarily always articulate, is that there's these two different mentalities. There's like these different thought processes that go on and, and they often clash. And, you know, I think that when we look at the, the OT side of the house, which is where I came up, it, it's really where I feel more at home even today, uh, is really, you know, out in the factory floor and, and talking to operators. Uh, or, you know, in a control room, you know, here at the utility uh, or wherever that might be. And uh, I think that the big mentality difference can really be boiled down to safety, right? And in the OT space, everyone views everything through the lens of safety. And it's, you know, because there's real risks. If, if things go wrong in, in the OT side of the house, I mean, we're talking injuries, loss of life, you know, pretty significant impacts from, from screwing things up. And, you know, on the, the IT side of the house, that's just not the case. You screw something up, okay, your website's down for a little bit. Get it back up. Your computer's not going to blow up underneath your desk and take your legs off. It's just not, it's not a real risk in the IT side of the house. And I, I think that, you know, from my personal experience, in the OT world, the IT folks are kind of viewed as reckless. Like, oh, my gosh, they didn't think through this thing before they did it. They didn't consider every possibility. Um, and... It's really it's just because they they are I mean they could right you, you know, they're I, mean, yeah. I don't think like that everybody that rebooting is no big deal even for IT people but let's say on the comparison sake this yeah. power plant is only going to go down six hours this year oh my gosh we got to reboot it's two different ends of the spectrum right yeah yeah it really is right and and I think that that's where a lot of the the disconnect comes from and and, it, and not knocking other side right the IT folks for for decades have been able to have kind of that um, looser mentality about things because the consequences just, they weren't life at limb. And it's never been a focus of that whole industry. It's never been like, okay, well, well, safety first, 
because it, safety wasn't a huge impact on yeah. the virtual world, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that just understanding each other's approach, and that's really what I always try to do coming in is is just help both sides understand that neither side's wrong, and they both everyone wants the company, whatever it might be, to succeed. They all want to make the thing. They all want to provide the service, whatever it is. And they all want to do the best that they can. So there's there's common ground on on both sides and in every situation in which they can build from. It's really just taking the time to, you know, it's those soft skill things, taking the time to really understand the other side um, and their, you know, their personal desires as as employees of that company to strive in the way that they can to make make things as safe and as best as they can. Um, so that's, I mean, that's what it all boils down to. Is, is there anything just, you like to do? I mean, I was thinking this, this is such an important topic. You know, we can, we could, we could give technology to some organizations, you know, new cool, coolest technology, but they couldn't operationalize it. There's a yeah. human beings problems and there's human being issues and there's not enough people and all this sort of there's human stuff. And so I'm, I find myself thinking more and more about that and less about the greatest new technology, which I love technology, but it's not the, it's not the only piece of the puzzle. And maybe, maybe people are the biggest piece. I don't know. Any words of wisdom for how you get people on the same same page? Um, maybe in a, in a place where there's actually high dysfunction, which isn't everywhere, but some places yeah. there's high distrust and dysfunction. Have you been in one of oh, those? Yeah. yeah, I walked into a food processing plant. We won't say what kind, but a, a food processing plant, and this was ages ago, where we were brought in to do a, a security assessment and the IT folks and the OT folks wouldn't get in the same room with each other. Uh, I mean, it was, and when we eventually did force them into the same room, it was scowls and finger pointing, um, some outright yelling. Uh, it was, it was not a healthy relationship. And, you know, it, basically what it came down to was like, well, you know, do you IT folks want to make good food? Well, yeah, of course we do. Well, okay. Do you, OT folks want to make good food. Well, yeah, of course. And, and do you want that food to not poison the people who are eating it? Oh, well, yeah, of course we don't want it to poison the people who are eating it. Okay, so you guys want the same things. I mean, it's all the same foundation. Let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about not poisoning the people you're selling food to and see how we can get there and make sure that doesn't happen. And And usually it's just, you know, it's whatever that common ground is. And it's always there because it's always people aren't at a company, and especially these days where you can you can change jobs easily. You're not at a company if you don't want to do the thing that the company does. Right. On some level, you're there, even if you hate your nine to five uh, because it's, you know, you're you're a cog in the gears and it's just a grind in and in, day in and day out. At some level, you still want to do your job to at least some sort of good, you know, don't poison the people who buy the food level. And if you find that common ground and build from there, I think that's really what it's all about is, is just making sure that instead of focusing on the things that are pushing the two sides apart, it's focusing on the things that bring them together and then using that as, as a basis for, okay, well, how do we get there and meet both sides' needs? And then anytime you're in the OT space, you know, to pick to pick my favorite side, I guess. Anytime you're in the OT space, safety does rule. Um, I mean, that's that's the the end of the day. There's real life impact from from poor choices in, in the OT space. So everything's going to be kind of a painful, slow process because we have to look at what is the long term impact from these decisions. What are the safety impacts? Um, and we're not changing technology that fast either. I mean, you know, some of that technology has been out there 30, 40, 50 years. And we have to work with that. 
it's not realistic to shut down a plant, especially like say a uh, paper, paper manufacturing plant, right? You want to shut it down and change out every PLC. I mean, that's 30, 40 PLCs in a typical paper manufacturing plant. The cost would be astronomical. The work would be insane. So it's just not realistic. You have to be able to change your expectation of, of how fast you're going to cycle technology and what the safety impact of everything is and work from there. Yeah, it, it's, uh, I'm glad you shared that. And, and, and the truth is, when I, I see if you agree with this, but there's, <laughs> there's something to be learned by each of these constituents. It's not, this group has it figured out and this group needs to get on board. There's really, you yeah. know, it, we were knocking earlier on, you know, just we can just reboot. That's sort of a knock on IT. But the truth is, IT is very nimble and very quick, and yes. not necessarily the heritage, you know, over here. And so there's things to be learned from each, and there's disciplines and skill sets and tools. I was talking with a, a, a significant leader in industry recently. He said, "Yeah, I'm coming around to a different idea that that we need to have our own suite of tools, you know, for cybersecurity in our operating technology environment. Maybe there's some tools we can buy together. They're expensive." Oh, save yeah. the company some money and we can we can all use it or we can use part of it and um he said i'm starting to think broader about some some dual use technology purchases and things like that and working working closer with the other you know the other constituents after years yeah. of saying i didn't want to yeah well i mean i mean you're hitting it you're hitting it right on the head right it's neither side is wrong both sides are actually right it's not even that there's stuff that that each side can can learn from each other certainly there is it's that each side fundamentally is correct um, it, and they're often trying to accomplish the same goals, it really boils down to better communication and some procedural practice type stuff. You know, I don't think that, so I'll use the classic example, right? I don't think that an IT professional, when they do a big port scan on, a, on an OT network, is going in there thinking, man, I really want to crash these PLCs that are out there. You know, that's that's not the intent. Their intent is to try and, you know, document what ports are open, which is very important and you need to do. They should probably be working with the OT folks, so it comes down to communication on on what what that port scan looks like. Maybe they do it during downtime, so if there is is something tipped over, it's not a big deal, uh, you know. So it's both sides absolutely uh, correct, and and most of what they're desire to do is sometimes the approach just needs improvement, and, and not just on the IT side, right? The OT side spills into the IT side of the house as well. We, we all like to imagine it as IT pushing into OT, but that's not the only case. I mean, there's a lot of instances in which uh, OT type influence is pushing into the IT world as well. So it's just, it, it, it comes down to that human connection, right? It's, it's about talking to each other. It's about communicating well, um, which is the hardest thing to do in business. I don't care what anyone says. Every challenge that we face often boils down to, to communication and poor communication because talking to people is hard. It's really hard to use our spoken language, and especially now in the days of virtual meetings, to communicate ideas to one another and articulate them clearly. Like That's a, that's a hard thing to do, and a lot of people really struggle with that, um, and, and to no fault of their own. It's, it's because human communications are hard and language is imperfect. We are not machines talking to each other in zero and zeros and ones. We have this kind of arbitrary you know, mix of different words that could mean something, could mean something else, and there's so much vagueness to our communication that uh, it, it, there's a lot to be interpreted, and, and that and, leads to a lot of challenges. Well, I think that's that's one of the golden nuggets of the uh, of our talk. Uh, uh, every session has yielded some of these, but that's, that's huge. Um, and and uh, 
And and so we'll say, well, so what do we do about it? The so one might say, okay, maybe there's some things I need to learn about about communication, and and maybe there's some workshops or reading a lot of certain lot of books on how to how to be better <laughs> a better communicator, um, and podcasts and YouTube videos, and so maybe consume you know commit to to commit to becoming a better communicator. That could be something someone could just choose today. Oh yeah, well, I, so I would say if if someone wants to guarantee success in their career, no matter what that career is, cybersecurity, something else, improve your communication skills. Because if you if you want to move up and be successful in, in the world around you, and not just career, personal life, everything, yeah. being yeah. an effective communicator, I think is probably the single biggest thing that any, any person can do. And it's probably also one of the hardest things to learn. Uh, I mean, I know there's like college degrees out there and communications and stuff, but none of that really is teaching you as an individual how to be a good communicator. The only way to get there is just to do it and, and fuck up. I mean, you, you got to go out there and say things to people that they take the wrong way. Hell, they might even get offended. Yeah. And, and then you, you got to apologize for that. Be like, you know, I'm sorry. That's not, that's not what I meant. And, and let me try to convey it to you better and, and not get upset about it. I mean, because I, I can't count the, you know, the number of, of fights out there. People like just mad at each other or, you know, at each other's throats because they're, they're saying the same thing, but they don't realize it. They think they're on the opposite side of something when really they're aligned. Again, no fault of their own. It's just that communications are really hard. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, yeah, number one thing I think anyone could do in any career is always try to improve how clearly they can um, communicate with those around them. And, you know, the flip side of that coin, how clearly they can try to interpret what other people are saying and go seek those clarifications instead of making assumptions. Yeah, absolutely. That's pretty, pretty stellar advice in my book. Um, <laughs> okay, so you go on from Concept Systems, you go to Portland General Electric, you um, do a stint at Leo Cybersecurity with a number of other people who've been on the cybersecurity show or, or on our Global Advisory Board or, or our fellow. Um, <laughs> and then you end up uh, at, at SoCal, at Southern California Edison, and doing uh, a variety of things. And today, GMS Security Lead. So I don't know, you know, along that part of the of the trail, what you would want to, what comes to mind to share, or if anything, or or what you're doing now. And then I've got some questions, sort of about, you know, introspective about the whole career. Yeah. Well, so so Southern California Edison. I found myself here largely by accident, but it's it's worked out really well. They very much have an eye on security compared to a lot of the utilities I've I've worked with directly or indirectly. All of them now are, are very focused on it, but Edison is really focused and, and they're willing to really push the envelope on that. Um, so, you know, they've really looked at, say, supply chain management, for example. It's one of the biggest threats that we see in, in the utility space. And uh, they're really now pushing the vendors to make better products, make, oh, I should say better, make more secure products. Secure by um, design, secure to begin with? So, yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Not something that we have to kind of rudimentary build yeah. some sort of loose security around, but something that's inherently secure, you know, implementing zero trust, for example, into into their applications or in, even into their hardware. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an uphill battle, but I love the challenge. So that's certainly what I'm enjoying about where I am today is that we're really trying to push the envelope on on the security of, uh, you know, the products that we use in critical infrastructure. Because I think that every day we have the lights turn on is a good day. And having worked in this industry for a long time, every day my lights come on, I am amazed. So it's, uh, <laughs> 
getting to a point where I'm not amazed when my lights come on is ultimately the goal. And hopefully I'll be able to do that before I retire. <laughs> it's funny you should say that. We do all take for granted these utilities uh, and we only notice them on the very, very few occasions that we uh, run out of them um, or they're disrupted for some reason, you know, a tree running across a power line or whatever. But but it's 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 just our whole society is based on them always pretty much always working. And, uh, and yeah. when, they, when they don't work, that being a very, very minimal amount of time. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, just even ignoring the security side of it, the, the logistics of getting power to everyone's house and ensuring that it stays there and ensuring that, that the downtime of that is incredibly low is really challenging. And we've been doing it for long enough now. And I think that's probably one of the main reasons that it's it's up so often isn't because it's like, you know, some super technically advanced industry. It's that we've screwed up everything that we can. And now we've learned how to not screw those things up anymore. So the, the utility industry, electric utility in particular, but many of the other utility industries that have been around for, you know, over a hundred years in some cases really have learned how to work reliably with what they got. And that's, you know, it's a good thing. And now that we have this new threat that we're facing, um, which isn't that new anymore, but it is growing in the, in the cyberspace to the OT side of, of the electrical utility. We're just learning to adapt to that as well. And it's going to take us some time. Nothing ever moves as fast as I would like it to. But, uh, you know, I work in the security side of the house. Uh, I'm constantly reminded that utilities are big ships and they turn slowly. But, uh, you know, it's it's really just trying to push that envelope there as well so that we hopefully can make less mistakes, less screw ups and learn from our past and get to a point where we are a secure provider of power, not we being Southern California Edison, but we being the utility industry as a whole um, is a you know secure provider of power to all of the customers out there because they, they depend on us, even if they don't know it. Power is so crucial to modern day life that when we have outages, people die. So it has real world consequences. Yeah. Well, and, uh, and there's, there's some analogs in some other other industries that are that are similar to that that uh, oh, yeah. matters, matters that it works and like you said safety culture is is a real thing in the uh, in the industrial environment and, and something that they've been working on for a long time uh, to be part to make it part and parcel to everything right everybody knows PPE and everybody knows certain protocols and um, and there's consequences if you sort of break some of those protocols but we don't have sort of the same culture and there's people who've talked about that you know can we emulate safety culture in sort of a cybersecurity, uh, you know, culture, you know, are there lessons learned there and how that was instituted? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there absolutely is. I mean, honestly, when I look at security, it is no different than safety. If I'm building a, you know, a safety device that detects if someone's foot's under a machine so it doesn't crush their foot, right? It's really not any different than building a security device. Um, it's just that instead of making sure that I'm not crushing a foot, I'm making sure that there isn't some way that someone can accidentally or intentionally flip a switch and turn power off, right? Um, it's all safety systems in, in the industrial world, whether that's electric utilities or somewhere else. I don't think that's, that any company should look at cybersecurity as anything different, and physical security for that matter, as anything different than safety systems, which... I think does actually lead to a lot of challenges. We see a lot of companies asking, well, what's the ROI on all the cybersecurity stuff? Those expensive tools that were mentioned earlier, right? What's the ROI on that? 
And I think that's really the wrong way to look at it. I mean, there, there, there really isn't a good ROI. And yeah, we can calculate some. I've done the math to illustrate, oh, look, we're reducing risk by this much. So therefore, we're getting this, this financial benefit. And look at this ROI that we've, we've created out of thin air. But the reality is that there, there isn't an ROI on cybersecurity, and there shouldn't be. Because it's not, it's not a product that we're trying to get return on. It's an investment in safety. It's an investment in security. And then it's, you know, why do people buy insurance? It's effectively the same thing. We're, we're trying to mitigate risks. Um, it's just that the risks that we have aren't necessarily mitigated by buying insurance. So we have to build uh, security in and cybersecurity insurance does have its place. I don't want to knock that industry. Um, but we do have to build security tools in place to actually protect our our equipment, our customers, and, and everything that doesn't always have an ROI, and it shouldn't be looked at that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk uh, with, with some of the time we got left on two things that I always like to ask about. Mentorship, being a mentor, being a mentee, supplying it, receiving it. Uh, what role has that played in your journey? Yeah, so years and years ago, I kind of had this uh, epiphany that I think everyone in the industry has at some point, uh, and that's that I, I don't want to work as hard as I'm working. And to work a little less hard, I need more people. Uh, but to get more people, I need folks who know what they're doing, and I can't find them. So what do I do? And, and what that boiled down to for me was, okay, well, I got to make them. I got to go out and find people who really want to get in this industry and just are, are having a hard time trying to figure out how to get their foot in the door, uh, or people who know nothing about cybersecurity and want to know, well, how do I learn? And, and that kind of started me down this path of mentorship. And I actually just like originally started posting on LinkedIn, like, hey, does anyone want to learn about cybersecurity? And I was just swamped with messages. And I went through and I, I talked to all of these people and, and you know, worked with them. And I do these one-on-one -on -one calls with them and talk about the different companies they can look at and be talking to, you know, recruiters are reaching out to me all the time. I mean, you know, 10 plus a week, uh, usually with jobs that I'm significantly overqualified for. And so they reach out to me and be like, well, hold on. I got the person for you. I got I got this this, you know, this guy or this gal who's really enthusiastic. They're very you know junior in the industry, but they're they're a real go getter. And, and the mentorship kind of just started with talking to people, making sure they're a decent human being and then pointing recruiters at them until they got hired. Um, and And that was where it began now i actually have like a one-on-one -on -one guy i'm working with uh army vet you know came out of uh service uh with a, a tbi a traumatic brain injury from getting blown up so he's a disabled veteran really smart guy though real go-getter and uh he was just working manual labor and he was like man this is killing me like i can't i can't just keep doing this forever and uh, i was like well you know have you have you thought about cybersecurity? because he's he's really into technology he really hadn't. And we spent, I don't know how many nights over glasses of wine talking about the industry and, um, you know, different paths to get in that. And ultimately, he decided so the, the VA would pay for him to go back to school. So they, he went and worked with them and he's now in a cybersecurity program. I think I'm going to go give some guest, guest lecturing things at, at the head of his program here uh, pretty soon. We're trying to work out the details on that. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Well, yeah, yeah. So we got him on the path, and that's kind of the, the current mentor. Um, so it's really evolved. But man, everyone in our industry needs to be doing it. I, I don't care who you are. Go out there and mentor people, even if you're 
even if you just got your first job in cybersecurity, tell everyone how you did it. I mean, what you're doing here is perfect for this, but everyone, everyone needs to be doing that because man, do we need more people on here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you know, this podcast series started as a bit of an experiment with maybe a, a hope that there would be inspiration, ideas, concepts, career advice, if you will, uh, you know, a little bit of that, at least as you all told your stories. And that's turned out to be the case. And we, we have Good. heard from people who've listened, who've said that one one episode, you know, specifically spoke to them and and you know and opened some doors or 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 got them thinking about something in a different way and you know so great because it is a it's a big puzzle right and we we got to attack different pieces of it where do people come from how do they on ramp how do, what what training do they need um, and it's not it's not a one size fits all uh, type of thing and I like that this plays you know at least some sort of interesting piece for some folks and and uh, and, and you all have shared you know so many things and I think that's that's sort of one of the last questions I like to ask is if you know what advice we do have people coming to our events and, and listening to these podcasts who are like the person you're talking about they're 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 either um, early you know haven't entered our space or are early entrance in our space and have a lot of decisions career journey professional. Uh, decisions yet to make and so any advice for those people you know that you you would give now something tactical something they can go do you know go do this i mean there's lots of things they could do right they think yeah you could sort of give hey go do this go do this i don't know yeah right it's 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 also crazy not knowing where people are right just giving general advice um there is no shortage of information available out there if you just go and look for it and sometimes it can be a bit of a struggle to find, especially if you don't exactly know what you're looking for. And, and I would say that, you know, the, the, the tactical advice, the classic tactical advice is adapt and overcome. If something's not working, change the way you're doing it and find something else. The information to get into our industry is wildly available. I can't count the amount of just stuff out there on Google that talks about how to get in here. And some of it's garbage, some of it's gold, uh, but it's going to be up to the individual to try and sort that out because there's not going to be anyone there to do it for them. But, you know, if they can find someone to mentor them, then great. Take them up on the offer. Like, like well, I said, more people want to, to yeah. I mean, that's Don't be afraid to ask. Yeah. You said, don't be afraid to ask. Our industry, yeah. in my experience, has a lot of people willing to say yes. People like oh, you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I, I volunteered to begin with. But if someone had asked me, I probably would have done it years earlier. Um, yeah. And I should have done it years earlier. But if for whatever reason, it didn't occur to me. And, and you're absolutely right. If someone had said hey, can, can you help me figure out how to get in this industry? I would have been like, hell yeah, I'll help you. And then I probably would have started down this whole journey of mentorship years before. So yeah, ask ask everyone who will listen to you. And, and, and my advice yeah. there is, is from my own experience as a, a 25-year entrepreneur, I had many, many earlier stage or first-time entrepreneurs reach out, you know, for mentorship. You know, as busy as I am, I still do some of those. What What's the difference? You can just yeah. see well thought out, thoughtful, articulate, well-written request for can I get some of your time and here's why versus, you know, a zillion not well thought out, not very articulate, you know, approaches. And what's this tied to? The very thing you, you know, the biggest point you made today, communication. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and so as busy as I've ever been, at my height of busy, the well-written, a student who may or may not ever launch that company, but reaches out and says, here's my passion here's my dream, what you want to do. Could I get 15 minutes of your time and just ask you some questions? I find it's, I'm very hard pressed to say no to that. Well, and you really hit on it there, right? They, they didn't come to, it doesn't sound like, at least you didn't bring it up. They didn't come at you with a bunch of technicals. They came at you with a passion right. and a dream. Yes. And, and that's what, that's what communication is. You know, we, yes. As an engineer, right, we talk numbers all the time and everything boils down to all these statistics and that kind of stuff. But that doesn't really sit home with people. If you really want to communicate well, 
it's about those passions. It's about those dreams. And it's yeah. just being enthusiastic. If you're going to go ask someone for something, be enthusiastic. Show them that you care. And, yeah. and the best way you can do that is, is to be a very passionate individual about, about whatever the topic is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and if you're in some sort of role or position don't where you could, don't sell something. That yeah. minimizes it, especially if it's picked up on that. That's really what this is about. It sort of diminishes yeah. everything. Whereas if it's pure, you know, or, or 90% pure, maybe someday there could be some sort of financial transaction. You know, for me, it's, yeah. it was often people looking for investment for their startup. And it's like, what well, comes real clear real quickly is, that's all <laughs> like, oh, well, then if that's all you're interested in, that's, then you, you dressed it up as I'd like to learn more, but that really wasn't your, you had an ulterior motive. And those get pulled out pretty quickly. Yeah, well, I would say save the pitches until your friends, right? I mean, it's yeah. if you're if your first thing out of the door is a pitch, then yeah. you're you're just cold selling, and and you know, yeah. sure, you might have success, you might not, but if that's ultimately your goal is to grow yourself as an individual, then then save the pitches, yeah. you know. And and the great thing is when you really become friends with someone, it's really hard to pitch to them. So the pitches will probably just never happen if you wait till your friends to uh to try and pitch to someone. <laughs> Well, uh, Brian, this is uh, this has been awesome. What are you excited about in the future? And I think this personally and tied to again people looking ahead. We sometimes get the question, you know, if I were going to start to specialize in an area now, what would make it, you know, make me really valuable in the next, you know, five years? Sort of like looking ahead. And entry level sure. can't necessarily see that, but they ask, is it is it AI? Is it machine learning? Is it uh, blockchain technology? You know, those all get asked all the time. Yeah. Is, is the application of those to this arena going to be huge in five years? So if I start studying those, now, just understanding how one of those works and maybe doing something in that area, either as part of my job or next, you know, adjacent to my job in the hobby area, I could be really, really valuable personally. So I think it's a two-parter. What are you excited yeah. about in the future and what areas you think will, will be, you know, hotter, you know, than, than others? Sure. What I'm currently really excited about is uh, containerization. Um, gave a whole talk on it. <laughs> so yep. I, I think that there's a lot of promise in the OT space with containerization. There's a lot of risk as well um, that we do have to mitigate, but I think that there, there's a lot of promise of that technology, more so than there was in virtualization. And, and we're already seeing it. We're seeing uh, the, the adoption of containerization in OT much more rapidly than we saw virtualization um, because all of the benefits that we're seeing from that. So that's, you know, that's kind of the, the, the up and coming thing that I'm excited about. Um, but I wouldn't well, necessarily. It sounds like also opportunity for people. You're excited about it and sounds like opportunity both. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to kind of explore onto that. I mean, I would caution people about pigeonholing themselves too much, right? I'm extremely specialized, but I am also very flexible. And I think that that's important because none of us really know the direction our industry is going to go. And Again, I would boil it down to if you had to focus on any one thing in your career, screw all the technicals, focus on human communications. And, and that's going to make you, I mean, if you are a good communicator, you're going to be able to learn uh, from others very rapidly. And, and I don't care how much of an expert you are. There's always someone who's better. You know, I, there are no shortage of people who consider to me, me to be like this you know, grand expert on certain technologies. And I'm a fool. I mean, honestly, like there are people that I meet that, you know, are, are buried deep in some dark room, staring at a computer screen all day, uh, never talking to anyone who have such a stronger understanding of any technology that I'm supposed to be a master at or whatever, than I 
could ever hope to have. So if, if anyone believes themselves to be an expert, they're probably not. And, and honestly, they probably don't need or want to be. Um, I think that having the soft skills, being able to communicate uh, and, and really, you know, having enough technical skill set to, to be able to adapt to whatever direction technology takes us, whether that's containers or, or AI. I mean, it, it'll be interesting when we start bringing AI into the OT space. It's, it's happening one way or another eventually. Um, but I don't think I would necessarily want to be a, an AI specialist. I think that uh, I've always been more of a generalist and it's worked well for me. Uh, we do need the specialists. I'm not, not saying that we shouldn't have them. I'm just saying that it's not uh, it's not an easy career path because if that specialty goes away, your your career might go away with it unless you can adapt. So be flexible, be adaptable, specialize after you have those things. Well, great great advice. Um, and I think we'll uh, we'll end on that. So yeah, make sure you're broad enough that you understand various fundamentals. Uh, <laughs> you can maybe expose yourself to some of those exciting areas, but if you go deep in and that's all you know, that could be a risk. Yeah. Um, and uh, th- those all seem like pretty uh, pretty sage advice. So we're at my my so one of my favorite parts of the show, which is where I get to ask the Pavot questionnaire. So I used to watch a show uh, that got syndicated. I I want to say 130 countries called the Inside the Actor Studio. Um, and um, there was a host for a couple of decades, James Lipton, who um, led an acting school in New York. And so he interviewed the greatest actors and actresses of, of our time on the stage in front of his actors, in front of his students at the acting school. And he always ended the show with the same questions that he borrowed from a French show. So I think it's, it's decades old. It might be a 50 year old. It's the same exact 10 questions. Uh, and so I feel like I'm, uh, I'm sort of a, a nodding my head to that show. Uh, and adding it to ours. So if you're ready, I'll ask you the uh, Pavot questionnaire. Sure. I'll see see how well I do. Yeah. All right. <laughs> you're not so you can't you, you can't help but win. Oh, uh, I'm expecting what, a score at the end. Yeah. Yeah. The Pavot score. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite word? Forward. What is your least favorite word? Can't. What turns you on, either creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Oh, I thought that was going somewhere else. <laughs> Challenges. Uh, honestly, like just being challenged is, is always what I'm seeking. What turns you off? Endless back-to-back meetings with no productivity. <laughs> what is your favorite curse word? Fuck. What sound or noise do you love? Oh, that's a tough one. I If I had to pick one, maybe like the sound of a waterfall. Like... Just and I, I live in the Pacific Northwest, so we have huge waterfalls around here. Um, so it's probably a different perspective if I live somewhere else. But yeah, the sound of a real, real big waterfall. What sound or noise do you hate? Like when you're dragging a metal utensil in, in a um, pot or a pan, man, it just makes me cringe every time. My wife laughs hysterically if she's like cooking something, or even when I'm cooking something. Either way, it that sound is oh, ooh, no, thank you. <laughs> What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I don't know. If someone would just pay me to go hunting all the time, if that's a profession, I'd do that. <laughs> what profession would you most like to not do? Ooh, uh, uh, a project manager. Not knocking project managers. I would not be able to succeed without them. But, uh, man, they have a skill set that I do not have. <laughs> and last but not least, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? 
Howdy. All right, Brian, thank you. Brian Foster, GMS Security Lead at Southern California Edison. Thanks for all you do in the industry and for the speaking and uh, and the, the topics that you bring a lot of great passion to and the, the depth of mentorship that I did not you would know you were involved in and for preparing and taking time out of your, your busy schedule to come on the show. Well, thank you, Derek, for having me. It's, it's been a real pleasure just, just chatting with you. I look forward to your future podcasts. All right. Sounds good. Take care. Be well. All right. Thank you. You too. Bye.